listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. With two cattle stations in the Northern Territory, a cattle property in Queensland and a helicopter business, Rebecca and Stephen Cadzo were in the perfect position to continue expanding their business interests and develop a pastoral empire that so many dream of. But instead they made the decision to downsize to just one cattle station. In this episode, Rebecca discusses their decision the concept of a life audit, and the impact their choices have had on their life, family, and business. Beck, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Steph. Thanks for having me. It's so nice to have you on. It's only been about two weeks of, <laughs> of me being here. It's been great, though. We love the cooking. Oh, no, Steph doesn't cook anyone. Oh, no. yeah, no. No, yeah. I don't know how to cook. Yeah. yeah. All that food poisoning I gave you guys, right? <laughs> so, we are here today on Mount Reddick Station. But let's, before we get into that, let's start off with, you know, the usual. What are you watching, reading or listening to at the moment? Okay. Watching, I'm watching Bridgerton on Netflix, which was um, given to me, an idea given to me by our Pommy girl that works here, Fran, and loving that at the moment. Um, I'm listening to, I love a podcast because I do spend a bit of time traveling. So I'm listening to The Deep by Zoe Marshall, who is really intriguing. Um, this American Life, I just like that just to see. I got hooked on that during the American election, just to see the perspective of what's happening in America at times. Shag Married Annoyed, just for a really good laugh. And though I think, I don't know what they eat, but whatever they're eating, I want to eat because they just kill themselves <laughs> laughing all the time. And you can just laugh at them laughing. And True Crime by Jesse Stevens, who's off the Mamma Mia podcast. Oh, I love a good true crime podcast, mm. but I haven't listened to that one yet, so I shall go and track it down. Short and sweet. Yeah. Oh, really? Good. Yeah. But of course, Central Stations. That's oh, yeah. always on the top yes. of my list. Oh, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Every Tuesday, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, today is Tuesday. You have listened to today's episode, right? Um, no, actually, I actually got to talk to my daughter in the car, but I'll be listening to it this afternoon. That's okay. Mm. I'll remember which slice of cheesecake is yours tonight. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> All right, now we've got that out of the way, let's get to where we are today, which is Mount Riddick Station, or Riddock, depending on who you're talking to. Yeah, so everyone pronounces it Riddick because it's easy. I think it just rolls off the tongue, but it's actually spelt Riddock. It's got the O at the end. So Mount Riddock Station is 200 kilometres northeast of Alice Springs. It's about 2,800 square kilometres. It's roughly from end to end about 150 kilometres long. In the middle of Mount Riddock, as you would know, Steph, uh, we've got the magnificent Hearts Ranges and it's an absolutely scenic, beautiful backdrop for the homestead but also for the station. It's a pretty good landmark too, so nobody really gets lost on Mount Riddock because if you don't know where the mountains are, uh, you're pretty bad with eyesight. They're pretty like instrumental in, in our land feature. <laughs> We run um, Pole Hereford Cattle, which is a different look for the Northern Territory. People quite often think of the Northern Territory and they think Brahmins, crocodiles and buffalo. We have buffalo grass, Pole Hereford Cattle and hills. So it's a very different look to the Territory. But, it, I mean, Central Australia, I think, is one of the lost or not spoken about treasures of the Territory. It is a well-kept secret and I also feel this way about the Pilbara region of Western Australia. And sometimes I think, though, 
you know, it's such a shame not many people know about it. But then on the flip side, isn't it great? Because then you don't have all these people coming and annoying you. Yeah, yeah. The solitude, well, not that we had a lot of solitude here at Mount Riddick, but we have a lot of a lot of space. And um, although the Hearts Ranges are rich in fossicking gems, gems are really popular here with the garnets and the zircons and things like that. So pre-COVID, we used to have a lot of people coming through. But um, I have to say COVID's been a lovely, nice reprieve to keep people away. You've been at Mount Reddick for 20 years now. Tell me about when you first came up and how you came to be here. I came up 22 years, 23 years ago now. I firstly came up as a governor south of town and I did that for six months and I really loved working with the kids that I was working with there. And then I actually came to Mount Riddock as a Jillaroo. A good friend that still lives next door managed to get me a job here as a Jillaroo I grew up on a cattle station, or we call them properties in New South Wales, an hour out of Armadale. So I grew up uh, amongst lots of cattle and horses, and that was a part of our life. And we were an hour out of town, so the isolation didn't worry me too much. And then I went to boarding school. But to get here, I yeah started off as a governess uh, and then as a Jillaroo, and I did my six months as a Jillaroo here on Mount Riddock, working for Steve and his parents, Dick and Anne. Um, I went back to Armidale to finish an education degree. I had started a Bachelor of Biotechnology degree um, with a major in forensics and genetic engineering at Wollongong Uni, and I didn't finish that. I decided I actually wanted to go teaching instead. Went back to Armidale University, and um, Steve arrived, and I had no idea that he thought anything other than me as an employee and he said it was the worst six months of his life. I'm sure if you would interview him, <laughs> that's what he says to everyone. It was the worst six months of his life, me working here. And I knew he hadn't actually been on a holiday for seven years and he just turned up at our doorstep. And I, I remember saying to him, what are you doing here? And he said, well, you don't work for me anymore. And I went, no, I've come back to do my uni. And he said, well, then I can chase you. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> it was a bit awkward because I was thinking – oh, I don't know if I feel that way. But I thought I said to him, well, if you're fair income, you need to show me. And so he kept flying over back in the ANSET days. Um, he'd jump on a plane every six or seven weeks and fly over and spend a weekend or a week with me while I was at uni and vice versa, I'd come up here during our uni holidays. So we were one of those rare couples, and I think they're really rare these days, that never lived together before we were married. Wow. Yeah. And so when you say when you were working for him, it was the worst six months of his life, that was because? Oh, apparently he liked me and I had no idea. I was oblivious to it. I was just here to work and that's all I did. Oh, yeah. my God. I love this story so much. You guys should see the smile on my face <laughs> right now and I've got like the little, you know, tingly feelings. Of, oh, this is such a good story. So you guys started dating and then did you not, you didn't come back to Mount Reddick until you were married? That's correct. Yeah. So when did you get married? How long did you, did you court for uh, back in the day? Not that it was that long ago, but you know. Yeah, three years. I finished my uni degree and I actually did a little bit of teaching in, um, I took on some short term contracts in Western New South Wales. And then my first big teaching job was actually back here in the territory after we got married. Yeah, so we got married in January. We had our honeymoon in Western Australia at Margaret River and then we drove back here. It was funny. I arrived with a car load and a trailer load of gear. That was it. And now I think of all the gear that we've got together, Steve and I, it would take road trains and road trains to get rid of it all. But, yeah, so we never lived together as a couple until we were married. And then, yeah, it was it was an interesting life moving up here as a wife. Um, instead of an employee and 
there's a bit of an age gap between Steve and I. There's 14 years. So he was a workaholic and I didn't then come back to work on the station. I actually went as working as a teacher down at um, the community here on the station. You'd had some teaching jobs in New South Wales and then you came out to teach in a community. What was that experience like compared to, you know, I'll use the air quotes here, regular school? Not that it's not a regular school, but, you know. Oh, so different, just worlds apart. So I can remember the first six months, I think I learnt more than the kids did. Um, and I and I can really sympathise with people that go from mainstream education to community education. So I was put in charge of the high school room and I was primary school trained but high school science and I didn't have any understanding of, I guess, the lack of literacy because they were all English second language and I was stupid enough to do gifted and talented was my forte at university for education and um, I didn't get to use a lot of that training down at the community. I, um, I should have done English as a second language, but I didn't. So that's a bit of a hot tip for anybody doing an education degree out there that wants to go teaching communities. Try looking at um, ESL language teaching because they've all got English as their second language. So I learned quite a bit of the Eastern Aranta language very quickly. Of course, you learn how to swear first because that's what all kids want to teach you what to do. I also learned how important basic hygiene was for kids to learn. So, you know, they couldn't hear when their noses are full of mucus. So teaching them how to blow their nose and keeping their eyes clean and things like that is just so important so they can see and they can hear and they can smell. And, you know, having the basic senses is a really big part of education. I was overwhelmed, I think, with how traditional our community was back in those days. I had no idea other than a few black and white movies that I watched at primary school on traditional um, Indigenous communities and what they do. So quite often the kids would just bring a goanna to school for lunch and I was not equipped for that or for campfires in the playground. And I definitely wasn't equipped to watching children stone a goanna for their own lunch and uh, you know, the whole, yeah, just wasn't equipped for that at all. But I loved it. I really, really in, enjoyed it. And it was what I did. And I did community education then for 10 years. And I've made some really great friends in the teaching fraternity with that. So you had your own teaching career while you were, well, you'd just be married and moved to Mount Riddick, but you were still involved in the station as well, were you, to some degree? Yeah. So my mother-in-law bred Arabs and she had Arab horses and she showed a lot of them in the eastern states and she also got into selling them into the endurance world. So I used to do quite a lot of the horse work with that. So I'd trot all the horses out to get them fit and then she'd have buyers fly up and and they'd do their vet checks and things like that for them to sell on. Yeah, I was still involved with the station, not like I am now. I guess the teaching was my primary job. Um, I did a lot of the cooking. I helped my mother-in-law out with the cooking. And slowly she taught me how to do the bookwork. She hated the bookwork. It was her massive vein of her life. She just hated it. And she was just such an amazing mentor, um, very calm. She didn't often speak out of turn or raise her voice, but when she did, we all ran. <laughs> it was probably something I need to listen to more often. But she, yeah, when she spoke, you listened. Tell me about what Mount Riddick was like in those days, you know, how the property ran. I know there were some other properties at the time, you know, how many staff you had. What what would Mount Riddick have looked like back then? Okay, so back then um, there was my mother and father-in-law and my husband. So they ran it as a partnership, the three of them. They were equal shares. And then 
we had um, my mother-in-law's sister and her husband. That was a Borman, and she was uh, Joyce was uh, the cook and the cleaner, more or less, for all the staff quarters. There was at least three, sometimes four jackaroos, and we had another retired couple here at the time. It, it honestly nearly felt like a retirement village. We used to laugh all the time. We used to call it the Mount Riddick Retirement Village. Um, I guess the average age was 70, 75 <laughs> with all the oldies, but uh, with them comes just a wealth of knowledge. So it was definitely an older station with people, but it, it, it was hard work. We had another station uh, that we leased um, off the Indigenous Land Corporation called um, Uratipra, which is 400 k's north of here. And we also had another property um, in Longreach called Green Hills, and that was, was all in the system before we got married. And it was hard. Steve wasn't around much. Steve um, got his helicopter licence within the first sort of six months of us being married and um, had started a helicopter business with two of his mates and or three of his mates, and it went down to two, um, so there was three of them in it. And and we didn't see a lot of each other. So um, those early years of I was teaching full-time and having young children, uh, Gabby was born the February 12 months after we were married, so 13 months after we were married, and then Bridget came along two years after that. And then Imogen came along another five or six years after that. So it was hard work raising kids by myself thankfully I, I had an amazing mother-in-law and I know a lot of people that live on stations um, when you're living with your mother and father-in-law it can be trying but I was blessed with mine. It sounds like there was an awful lot going on it's one thing to be running a station but then you've got you said this lease block which is 400 k's north that's that's a fair hike to get there and then another property in long reach which is sort of central queensland uh and then a helicopter business as well you've got your own and then in saying that you're raising children and being a teacher like there's an awful lot going on there life sounded very busy and like you said you didn't get to see steve a lot yeah it it was and um it was hard and it actually drove us to the point where we had to make some big life decisions. We actually call it um, 2010 was our life audit year. We audited um, quite a few things. We audited toxic people out of our life, I guess, and we actually audited possessions. And we realised then that it was it was actually quality of life over quantity. So I can remember Steve's father coming over to the house one night when we'd had Imogen and just for a background, Imogen was a really sick baby. She was born very premature and, and we, I sort of spent the first couple of months in, or even before she was born in town on bed rest. And she was born with a protein intolerance. It was called food protein induced enterocolitis syndrome, FPIES. And so she couldn't have any protein in her system whatsoever. And if she did, she'd go into cardiac arrest and system shutdown. So, yeah, it was a, it was a lot to take in at the time and and we we were offered another 20 year lease on Uratipra. And I can remember sitting with Steve um and saying we just can't do this. We can't do this anymore. There's there's only so much of us and we're not going to have a life with our children. Look how young our children are and you haven't even seen them for 12 months more or less the eldest two. And the youngest one, and we were very blessed in that I had an amazing governess, a retired teacher here at the time, and she'd been with me a couple of years. And she managed to hold it together with the other two girls. But you don't need other people rearing your kids when you're in hospital with another one. So 
I guess that was the pivotal moment where we could have kept going with and and getting bigger and better and we were actually looking at other stations in the district to buy and we decided no 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 more we've got a really good place here let's make it extra good let's put everything we've got into one place instead of little bits and pieces into many let's do let's do it well that's not something you hear very often and not just in the cattle industry you know whether people have got a pastoral business or any other kind of business in any other industry generally speaking the the goal of many people is to grow to expand to build an empire and so much so in the pastoral industry, you know, we talk about the cattle kings and kings in grass castles and mm. the Duraks and the Vesties and Kidmen and everyone building their empire. And so here you are with your core station, a lease block, another block in Queensland, looking at purchasing more and, and building this empire. And you guys just did a complete 180 and went the other way. Yeah. So I actually think um, having a sick child really, it was a reality check. Um, and it was, it was a really big reality check. We nearly lost her a couple of times and, and that just brought home to us. What are we doing? What is our life all about? And uh, I'm, I'm guessing that there's other people out there that may have done the same thing. And we just, we knew what we've got here is a really good product, but it was, it was deteriorating. It wasn't getting any work done on it. Um, we, we've invested a lot since then in the place to make it even better, but. It wasn't going anywhere. The other places were going ahead in leaps and bounds and finding staff for them. And then when the staff went on holidays, we had to pack up and go up there and look after places and all run over to Queensland and, and look after that. And we just didn't have a life of our own. So it was then that we decided, yep, we're going to stop. We're going to downsize. We're going to have quality of life. And we embarked on following a bit of a hobby and trying to do what we do and do it really well. How was that decision received by your family and your peers? I think definitely by the family, they didn't understand. Steve's father had done a lot of work to get where he had got to. Um, he'd worked really, really hard to get all these places. But in hindsight, looking back now, and I guess I'm only speaking by myself, it was a huge step to be able to make sure the succession for the family worked well. And it, and it, in, in my hindsight, and it's probably very different for every family member, it was good timing. Um, it meant that Steve's sister, um, the long reach block was hers. And so she got that, that all the payment for that when it sold. And, um, it just, it just meant that it was certainty for our future, for our family. And it was certainty for the family to know what we were going to be doing. What about your friends in town or within the pastoral community? Did anybody else just kind of think, you're mad? Like, why wouldn't you want to keep growing or yeah. think that you wouldn't have, a, you know, did you ever think that you wouldn't have enough? I suppose something that is comes up a lot these days is, you know, economies of scale and that you need to have a certain amount of land to be, to be able to run a profitable business. Did you ever worry that you were kind of shooting yourself in the foot? No. No, not one, not for one minute. Um, I think being involved in the book work sort of showed me just how much money can be dribbled out for, for no real reason. And definitely on a lease block that's not even your own and you're putting so much capital into it when that capital could be used on your own block. Yeah. So we, when we took over here at Mount Ridock and the succession plan went ahead and Steve's sister went her way and, and Steve and I got to keep Mount Riddick. We really invested a lot of effort and time and energy into um, capital expenditure 
on Mount Riddick. And we were really lucky in that Steve's parents stayed on and they were here to guide us through lots of things. So Steve's father was amazing with his bull selection and his cow selection and, and set up an amazing herd for us to be able to keep working with. Um, and we had an amazing, another amazing friend who is our stock agent and he was when we took over and he still is today and he's really helped us with a lot of guidance. In regards to our friends thinking about it, um, we did have, there was a bit of criticism, I guess, but this was the decision we had to make for ourselves. It's not their life. They're not the ones running around chasing their tails and not seeing one another. Um, and so I guess because we live in such a solitude, those sort of people you don't keep in your life. Once you decided to let Uratipra go and let the lease lapse, what was the first change that you noticed in your life? I noticed that we had more time together and I noticed that the kids were a lot more settled having their father around. Um, it was also during that time that I stopped teaching because I had to be here more. Um, the last 12 months of having Uratipra, we de-stocked Uratipra and we did a single vendor sale in the Alice Springs sale yards and that was pretty hectic. We had a lot more family time and it was during that time that we decided that we'd take up a bit of a hobby and it was a hobby that neither of us had done much of, camp drafting. And we decided to do that, one, it's a family sport and two, we could we could travel around the Territory or around Queensland or New South Wales or wherever and um, and enjoy ourselves with horses. We, I, I do like horses. I don't lo- love them. That's always been a family joke in that Steve said I'd never marry anyone that loved a horse. I do like them and I know that they've got a job to do. And he he's jumped on board. I remember going to a, a couple of camp drafts and he actually just drove the truck. He wouldn't ride at all. And even though he had a horse, everybody else rode his horse. And then finally he said, oh, bucket this I'm going to go and have some fun too and now he's got more horses than me on the truck (laughs) but we did we did do some investing to follow our hobby and that was uh, we had an investment house in town and we sold that and we had a really lovely gooseneck made and truck and so that we could do what we do and and enjoy what we do so it wasn't hard work when we went away what did your social life look like before the the decision to downsize and to focus on this quality of life? There wasn't one. It was, did, did you get to go to any events or? No. No, very limited. I think we went to a few Christmas parties. That was it. Um, I was teaching. So if there was any social life, it was probably with my teaching friends uh, or the, the friends I'd made, yeah, in the teaching game. Really, in regards to the pastoral side of socialising, there wasn't much at all. We just didn't have time for it. Yeah, so um, going back to Urutipra, we decided um, to get, I guess, to let that lease go when the pregnancy with Imogen wasn't going great. So she hadn't grown for the last trimester and I was on bed rest and and that was when we decided that we needed a quality of life. Um, when she was born... It was in all in the throes of getting rid of Oratipra. So Steve was away um, up at Oratipra with the managers and the care. We had a really, really lovely caretaker couple up there. And the helicopters were just going flat out um, up and down between Oratipra and here. And we had a mustering crew up there and every paddock had to be mustered and tagged a certain colour. And I think Imogen was about three months old at this stage when we had our single vendor sale in Alice Springs, I think it was about three and a half thousand, four thousand head. 
And so the trucks would uh, load at Uratipra with the cows and calves uh, tagged in their paddock lots with Steve and our, stock, our agent Tim um, would load the trucks up at Uratipra and I would receive the trucks in Alice Springs. Um, we had at the Row Creek Yards um, a really great guy that was managing the yards at the time, Steve Turner, was there with a, a bit of a crew, a few guys, and we would take the cows and calves out onto the flat at Row Creek that had never been handled with horses and we would mother up cows and calves in three-deck lots and we did something like 900 units in three days. And I do remember in each evening um, a couple of the old bushes in the district, old Johnny Hagen and old Ted Fogarty would turn up at the sale yards and each night go through the pens to see whether we'd mismothered something and they were looking for the calves that were mismothering. And it was also during that time, old Billy Hayes, and it was not long before he passed away, he would come out to the sale yards every day on his horse and he'd just say, oh, I'm just so proud of you doing this the old way and it's so lovely to see something being done the old way. I was really, really fortunate that um, one of my sisters, I've got three beautiful sisters, the sister just above me, who was a full-time teacher as well, took time off work um, and she came up and looked after Imogen. So Imogen was only about three months old at this stage and had been just diagnosed with FPIs. And so I was breastfeeding her um, every three hours on a exclusively protein-free diet, which did not give me much other than potato. Um, and she would bring her out and I'd breastfeed, I'd jump off a horse, I'd breastfeed her and then I'd jump back on the horse and mother up and and then I think in between feeds I was pumping and <laughs> all sorts of things um, in the way box at Warrow Creek. And um, I can remember cantering around on a horse and and one of the fellas going, I think it's time you fed that baby. And I obviously <laughs> had a bit of milk going on. But oh. <laughs> or they'd see the car coming out and they'd say, I think the baby's here for a feed. And and that was hard work. But, you know, it's uh, it was a huge accomplishment. It was, it was hard work. And I can remember thinking about four months later, my lips were still cracked. And I just think my body still hadn't got over, um, that it was a huge, huge couple of months. Yeah. So if Imogen couldn't have protein, but obviously there's protein in milk, or mm-hmm. I would assume in breast milk. So you had to go on the a protein diet, protein free diet as well. Yeah. Which yeah. was just potatoes. Mm. Yeah. So. Are we talking, you know, like could you make – you couldn't make mashed potatoes with like butter and cream, no? Because no? no. that has protein in yeah. it. Yeah, no butter, no cream, no milk, no nothing. Um, so that didn't last real long for me. It wasn't um, something that I could sustain. So the specialist, we were, we're so fortunate in Alice Springs. Our medical professionals in Alice Springs are just amazing and – the specialist flew down from Darwin, the head guy, and he gave me a lot of support in what to do with Imogen. So it was quite difficult in that all she could have. So she was then close on four or five months and she could start solids. And I can remember asking him, so what do I feed her? And he said, there's only one thing this kid's going to eat and it's potatoes. So for all you finicky new mums out there thinking that the kids have to have everything with different textures and different tastes and things like that, um, my daughter, we call her the potato head kid, <laughs> the potato kid, she had mashed potato and that's all she had with water. And when she did actually go on to a bottle, it was the most revolting formula that I had to get 
it was bought up on road freight. It wasn't even allowed to be flown up. And I had to put an order into the chemist a month before I needed it. And it came in these cans. It was called Neocate and it was just revolting. It stank and she hated it, but she got used to it. And that really was the only supplement that she could have other than potatoes. So she had mashed potato and white potatoes that couldn't be sweet potato. It couldn't be pumpkin. It couldn't be like she had nothing other than potato for two years. And then getting her onto other foods was really quite traumatic. Um, and this is why I didn't go back to teaching. I just couldn't. It was too hard trying to raise her as well as looking after another two children. So whenever we introduced new food to Imogen, I'd have to go to the hospital and we'd put a drip in her hand, which in itself with a two-year-old is traumatic. And we would give her um, a new food that the doctors thought she could have. And that's when we'd start like with the apples and the pears. And we didn't start that until she was two. So that was just hell. And we'd have to sit at the hospital and wait. Um, I think it was two hours. And then if she hadn't had a reaction, we could remove the drip from her arm. And yeah, but we had to be ready in case there was a massive reaction. I'm just thinking it, it's so lucky that you're relatively close to town mm. as you are, but also that you did make the decision to downsize because, you know, the amount of time you need to be able to look after her or just children in general, but look after a sick child like this yep. at home, but then to be able to have that time to say, I need to go into town for the day or for a couple of days or a couple of, you know, there's no such thing as really going for a couple of hours by the time yep. you drive there and back. It's a whole day at the very least. And if you'd had these other properties and all been continuing to mm. grow, it just would have been horrific. Yeah. I, I think you've got to work out what your limit is and um, we'd reached ours. And it was only a couple of years ago you guys decided to let your share of the helicopter business go. Tell me about the decision with yeah. that. So that was one that all the company made. Um, Steve was in partnership with a couple of his mates and we actually had the helicopters based out here for a while. And so not only was, were we sort of, um, downsizing and going through succession, which, which is quite an emotional trip for those that haven't been on it. But I think there's a lot of literature out there now that can help families do it a lot smoother than, um, than the past has been. And we, uh, we've, uh, I guess this is one, my one thing is that we have succession talks with our daughters often. One's only 11, one's 18 and one's 16, but I don't think there's any time not to talk about it. I think the more that it's spoke about, the better it is for families to be able to deal with it if you're that way inclined. Um, but yeah, so we had the helicopters and they were, we had them here and then, we, then they moved to town. But while we had them here, we had some really great pilots. Um, we had one pilot when he was here. I had Bridget, um, in a high chair and our middle daughter just, um, is a bit, food loving. So I don't know how she would have survived on the potato diet. It just wouldn't have happened. Anyway, I remember her and um, this certain pilot, Mr. Drew, had a very weak stomach and he was sitting at the kitchen table and I was cooking for all the men and all the pilots. I think I used to do up to three sittings in my little kitchen at the house at the time. That's before we built the station kitchen. And and this poor fellow, um, this child decided to hoover eat her chicken nuggets one night before she didn't want to share them, obviously, with anybody else and then regurgitate them across the high chair. And this poor fellow's out on the back lawn, absolutely heaving his heart up. 
And I was thinking, oh, my God, what's happened? What's going on? And I come out and I said, what's going on? He said, oh, the kid just vomited everywhere. And I thought, oh, good, that's all right. So I wheeled the high chair out and I hosed the kid off. I hosed the high chair off. I had to hose him off just about. It was just a <laughs> catastrophe. And then within about six months of him being here, he hadn't really had anything to do with children. I can remember him calling out and saying, hey, Beck, that kid's vomited again. <laughs> but he hadn't done the hurry bolt out the back door to try and regurgitate his meal on the back lawn as well. So that was, yeah, yeah, it was quite interesting. But yeah, we've, we've, I guess one good thing about having so many things going on in your life at that time is you don't realize until you look back. And then it's only when you look back, you think, God, I should be really tired. I guess my husband and the main business partner in the helicopter, um, we're getting on and it was just getting a bit too much for the company. Um, regulations with CASA were getting tighter and harder and, and people are getting older and I think they just need to work out, you know, what their priorities are as they get older. So we decided to downsize. We, um, we did buy one of the helicopters out of the business for ourselves here at the station and, and now it's all just based here and, and, and it's more a quality of life. So it's, it's a bit of a funny joke. We go to a camp draft these days. I drive the truck with all the horses and Steve flies in in his helicopter. <laughs> Does he really? Yeah. He takes what he takes, what he calls the high road and I have the low road. Um, and his excuse for that, other than getting, you know, more hours in his helicopter, um, is, that then he can fly home quickly if something happens back here. Oh yes, yeah. ever the planner for yeah. a yeah. <laughs> for a disaster should it happen. Um, I love that though. That you know, it just seems that so many times the story we hear is we want to get bigger and just bigger and bigger and bigger and have more and more and more. And here you guys are saying, well, no, let's you know, and, and so it's not just this one time where you were pregnant and you had the. It's not. You, it's not just one fork in the road. Like no. we're a tipper. There's one fork in the road and you decided to take the road less travelled and then you've done it again with the helicopter business mm. and, yeah. you know, you're not afraid to make those hard choices and choices that a lot of people wouldn't make because they think, oh, no, we, we need to be buying more helicopters, not getting out of it altogether. And you're like, well, no, if we get out of the helicopters, we can even have even more time. Yeah. And I think that speaks a lot to your mindset that you and Steve have an abundance mindset. I mean, I'm just springing this on yeah. you for the first time now, but you know, in a lot of stuff I read and listen to, you can have the scarcity mindset or the abundance mindset. So you're always like, there's, you know, if you're in scarcity, it's, there's never enough. I need more. You know, we don't have enough. And abundance is I've got what I need and whatnot. And so yeah. I think a lot of people and, and not just in this industry, anywhere in life, even in, with your personal finances or anything, uh, we often operate out of scarcity mode. Like, I need more. I need more. I don't have enough. So yeah, I, it wouldn't be. Whereas you, to me, it's that you guys have an abundance mindset that, well, we don't need a helicopter business. We can, we can let that go and still mm. be comfortable with what we've got and know mm. that we're covered. Um, yeah, I think so. I, I mean, Steve's a bit of a hoarder, as you can see when you look out the back gate here. And I have put a bit of a stop on that and, um, he needs to get rid of some crap, I guess I'd call it before he gets another toy but yeah and I I also think a lot of it comes down to being happy being happy in yourself and happy with your partner and happy with your, the to the choices you make and and that's not easy um I see a lot even just with family and they're not happy where they are and they make really rash decisions I guess um and, and then they're jealous of 
where everybody else is at and you have to think, well, you've got to live with the choices you make. Um, I did, I guess I was lucky, can I call it lucky? Um, when I had Gabby and I was up here all by myself and I'd had a Caesar, it was a C-section and she was an enormous baby, so she was nearly 10 pounds and, I mean, it wasn't a great deal with me, but, yeah, and I did get a bit of depression and I can remember reading a book and the whole book was based around life is about the choices you make. You make the choices, you live with the choices and how you react to those choices is how your life's going to be. So I guess that, that, uh, that's sort of a thing that I live with every day and think, do I want to, do I want to react to that choice or do I choose not to? And, and Steve's a very non-reactive person. Um, I don't think we've actually had an argument in about, oh, I'd say probably 10 years. I'm, mostly argue with myself, but he won't argue back. So I've learned not to argue because it's just easier. Yeah. And and we discuss everything. Everything's discussed to the minute level. He's a bit of a details man and I'm a bit of a big picture girl and and I guess that works well for us too. Do you happen to remember the name of that book? Um it's it's got a yellow cover <laughs> with <laughs> black very writing. Um yeah. And yeah, it's just, yeah, it was all about life choices. And it was actually, um, my mother got me onto that book. And it, yeah, one of the best reads I've ever had. It's still in my bookcase, Steph. I'll see okay. if I can find it. So we'll go on, we'll go and have a hunt around in the house yeah. and see if we can put a link to that in the show notes. So you've been at Mount Riddick, Riddock. Sorry. Yeah. I'm just going to always call it Mount Riddick, uh, for about 20 years now. And so it was about 10 years in. So halfway through your time here so far that you guys had this first fork in the road mm-hmm. where you made the conscious choice to go for quality of life over quantity of, well, not quantity of life, but mm-hmm. quantity of assets, assets and, yeah. and achievements. And well, not really achievements because you guys have got a, a whole trail of achievements behind you and have been recognized as leaders and you know, early adopters of technology in this industry. So let's talk a little bit about that now, the things that you have been able to do since taking that step back from building outwards to yeah. kind of, I guess, building up in a way. Yeah. So we decided one of our biggest costs in running a business, and I guess it's probably with any business, not just pastoral, is staff. And we had quite a few staff at the time and, and trying to find staff that, that want to stick around, not just the gap year kids that want to come out and do their 12 months and party like it's one big BNS, but we wanted to have, you know, somebody that wanted to make this a profession, their life profession. So which much as what we're doing, this is our profession now. So I've always loved technology and I've always loved science and I've always loved reading. So I was fortunate enough to go to the Pigeon Hole Field Day way back when Bridget was a baby. She's now 16. So that would have been, oh, yeah, 16 years ago, I guess. And saw their telemetry um, in action, the observant. And just I knew then that we needed something like that. We had a Borman who just drove and drove and drove and drove nonstop. And at the time, our roads weren't great. Uh, we had the Plenty Highway. That's our main arterial road for the station. It was dirt and very poorly looked after. And our utes, we'd go through a ball ute every two years and it just, whether it was, you know, spring snapping or steering arms coming off and, you know, it was just dangerous. And and the, the use of diesel, like I can remember just – thousands and thousands of litres being pumped every week into engines. So 
it was at the time that we decided we'd try the telemetry. And I guess one of our business philosophies is that we look at the costs involved. So the, the outpouring of cost to get a telemetry unit at that time was about two and a half thousand dollars. And we could justify that purchase, even though it doesn't seem like an awful lot now. Um, back then it was for us and that was justified. And we also installed a solar bore at the same time. And I think that was around $10,000. So we justified that by, working out the diesel cost for the week for that bore. And I think I've got the fine, I've got it all written down. Um, and that bore with the solar and the telemetry. And the, so we, we worked out the costings for the boreman's time. He's, um, the diesel in his Toyota, the wear and tear on the Toyota, the diesel that was being put into the engine to keep the engine going. And that bore at the time was 80 Ks from the homestead. It paid itself off in two weeks. Incredible. Yes. Absolutely incredible. So from that, I guess it's taken us 16 years, but every bore on Mount Riddick now is solar. If we need a backup bore, they're solar. Uh, I think we've got two generators that we, they're mobile generators that we pull around if we need any more water that the two solars can't provide during daylight hours. And every single bore is on a telemetry system. So Back in the day when we first started them and we still had the generators on them, we could do the automatic start stops and then we in, started putting on float switches. So the tanks only ever lost a foot of water and the generator would automatically cut in with the float switch. We thought that was pretty cool. So yeah. for our listeners who may not be familiar with with water infrastructure on stations and how uh, bores work and what telemetry is, can you just talk us through that? Yeah, so... The bore um, is a pump down a borehole and boreholes vary in degrees on how deep they can be. So we're not all that deep here. I guess we're probably around the 60-foot mark, 30 to 60-foot mark, so it's not that bad. That used to be done with rods and columns, so it was very tedious. If you had to go and pull a bore, that was a whole day of pulling the rods and the column and then putting it all back together, putting buckets on it, and that was back in the windmill days. And now it's all done with flexi-column, 10 minutes, the bore's out, um, you've got a new pump on it and it's back down the hole again. So labour costs with just putting um, solar in for infrastructure was a, a win-win straight away. We were saving time on pulling balls if we needed to. And they have to be powered by something. So previously it was diesel generators or windmills. OH&S really cancelled the windmill industry out of itself. Uh, they're just really dangerous. And so we've put on solar. Uh, so we're reducing our um, emissions and we're using the solar energy. It's just cleaner, it's greener. It's nicer, it's quiet. It's yeah. so quiet. And you just hear a nice little hum instead of a, a diesel engine going dum, 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 all the time. And, and it's just better for the environment and it's nicer for the cattle. So, yeah, and every single bore. So a telemetry system um, here at Mount Riddick, it's done through a UHF. Um, so Steve has put an antenna on one of our highest mountains on our mountain range, and that's our repeater station. And every bore talks to another bore and it bounces information back on. And we look at tank height and, um, and it's also got a rainfall gauge at every bore. So we've worked out, um, the first thing you've got to do when you put a telemetry system in is actually trust the telemetry, learn to trust it. And, and we've worked out so many different uh, techniques in 
um, reading gauges to work out when cattle are coming into yards. So, and their social structure within the, the mob that they're there. So their drinking times and how many come in at different times. We've got cameras on a few of them. So through the UHF, that bounces all that information back to the homestead and we can access that telemetry anywhere in the world on our mobile phones. So no matter where you are, you can tell how much water is in your tank, how much rain you've got out of that area. And so essentially, you know, a a large part of bore runs is going out and checking to make sure there is water in the tank, which then feeds into water in the trough. Mm -hmm. So obviously you still have to do bore runs because – Troughs need to be cleaned. Yep. Infrastructure just needs to be inspected anyway. A bore run is so much more. You know, it also includes checking fences and condition of cattle, country, many things. But you're able to reduce the the frequency, yep. which really cuts back on, as you were saying before, your the cost of somebody's time, diesel to um to run the motor car, wear and tear on the vehicle. Yeah. So we had a full time boreman, and that boreman's position was more or less seven days a week. Um, 52 weeks of the year. So I guess we, we gave them Christmas Day off, but I can still remember the boreman back in the early days when I first started here 20-odd years ago. He still did a bore run on Christmas Day. He still had engines to start so that we had water here at the house. So now we are down to one bore run a week. Um, if that's Most of the time it's done with Steve in the helicopter because we don't have to take diesel around. We know if there's a problem with the trough because it'll tell us in the tank. The tank won't go down. So we know there's a blockage between the tank and the trough, so the trough might be empty. Or we lose a whole tank of water, which means the float's gone on the trough or a cow's got in there and got underneath the float or something's happened. So you know that there's going to be a problem when you get there. You also know if, say, a trap's been shut accidentally or blown shut or leaked shut or whatever – so the tank will just all of a sudden you'll get hit hard and you know that you know the patterns that that should be there that aren't there and and a, a notification will be sent to us so that we can go and check it. So that was the first major change that you guys made at Mount Riddick after this fork in the road and not only does that save you so much you know well money in terms of your salary and your your vehicle costs but time and and even if you had somebody still there in that position if their job's gone from seven days a week to one day a week, imagine what they could be doing in the other six days a week and and the time that you guys get as well. What other things have you implemented at Mount Riddick? Um, we've implemented a – it's called rotational spill grazing technique where we've cut big paddocks up into smaller paddocks um, to be intensively grazed for a short period of time and then given a long time of spelling to be able to regenerate. We've done that to be able to encourage more native grasses to grow. So we're looking at soil health and um, and grass cover because we are in the business of producing kilograms of beef. So the better kilograms of beef and the more kilograms of beef we can produce, the more money we're going to make. And we've worked out that in order to be able to make more money, we need better soil and better grass cover and a more variety. We want to be able to have a really healthy soil. So we've put a lot of work into land care and also our grazing practices have changed significantly, definitely in the last 10 years. I also understand that you and Steve were the first people who purchased a walkover weighing system, not necessarily first people to use one because there were a number handed out during trials and research projects, but you were the first people to purchase a walkover weighing system and now you have a couple. Um, how many do you have? Like, How do you use them? Where are they? And then for people who may not be familiar, which I'm guessing may be a lot, 
How do they work? Okay, so they're called a wow unit. Yeah, walkover way. And they are a bit of a wow unit. They've got a solar panel on the top. They've got a Niels tag reader on the side and they've got way scales in them. And it's also a, a part of the telemetry system. So a cow will walk onto, it's like a crush is what it looked like. Like a little gateway like a little, sort of. Yeah, and then a platform. So it's like a, a mini crush, a little, a little race. And so the cow will walk on and yet you have to put them through a training program for them to be able to use this. So mm. they come through the trap um, across the whale unit and they get their tag read, they get their weight done, and then they can go into water. So you're getting a curfewed weight, which is what most feedlots um, will want to see if they're going to weigh. They want a curfew weight. They don't want a, a weight with a belly full of water or feed. So it's a perfect way in which to get your, I guess, accurate weights for sales for feedlots. And then you can then track through the, the program that's been written with the walkover weigh units, average daily weight gains, which then will give you an idea of your pasture use. So um, we then tie it back into some satellite imagery with our pasture growth so we can work out whether the cattle are on a rising plane of nutrition. So mainly our steers, were we've got three of these units now and we had them in the steer paddock initially. We've just put it into the heifer paddock and we've just started um, working out um, with our heifers, we're looking at not only the average daily weight gain, but also their pregnancy weights and, um, and then their pregnancy dates. Um, when they calve, we, the, we can see their, their, car- their loss in weight will give us our, their calving dates. So then we'll know how many heifers have calved in that paddock in the last couple of weeks. I'm just thinking maybe a way to describe it is sort of like when you walk through the security bit at an airport or sometimes I know at some airports when you come out, I don't, I know there's one at Perth airport, you kind of, as you come down and before you walk out into the foyer, it's kind of like some glass doors you walk through and then you're in it and then there's another set of glass doors and then they open. So I'm not, obviously we encourage people to go and maybe Google what this looks like and we can post some pictures on our site or there there are some pictures on our website, but it's so yeah, they're kind of like a little, Thing they walk yep. through, and when you said the the Nils tag, that's a little electronic identification tag in there, yep. yeah. So it all reads, and and so you can also use it though to draft cattle as yes. well. So we've done that in our rotation. We were looking at um, weight loss of mustering initially, and where the steers were being mustered and then walked down to the yards, we worked out that the we were losing up to five to seven percent of their weight. So we were losing quite a bit of money. Um, every time we mustered the steers. So we bought the wow units, the walkover way units and the automatic drafters and we put them on and we found it was easy. Um, so what we did back at the computer at the house, we set the parameters for the draft. So we wanted anything that was 400 kilograms or more were drafted into the yard. Anything less than 400 kilograms was put back out into the paddock. So it was just a simple, the gate swung one way or it swung the other. And then we pulled up in the truck the next morning and we weighed and we loaded all the sale cattle. They didn't need to be mustered. It pays to have a really good weaning program on your cattle before you put them into this program because they need to be quiet to be able to go over the walkover way and then you need them to be able to be handled um, without stress onto the truck at the end of the day. It's incredible though to think about the efficiencies and the savings in labour, time, money, yeah, stress. Yep. Stress yeah. on the cattle, stress on people, stress on the landscape. Yeah. You know, you're not mustering, you haven't got, you know, extra hooves or, or vehicles or whatever going over 
Yeah, tearing things up oh. and chasing things at 100 miles an hour. There's none of that. And while the cattle are drafting themselves into these yeah. yards, you know. And it happens at night time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and the things you could be doing while the cattle are mustering and yeah. drafting themselves, essentially, I think perhaps it might be difficult for some of us to wrap our heads around that. Well, but what do you mean? Like, if we do this, we don't get to muster. We don't get to, you know, when you think of a cattle station, you think big mobs of cattle, horses, helicopters. It's so iconic and so quintessential that you've got a big mob of cattle and that's, you know, yeah, we the still big do that. We yeah. still do that with our cows and calves. They're in big paddocks. It's, it's mainly our wieners that we put through the trial. We, we call them the trial paddocks. It was a trial way back when, but it's our rotational grazing paddocks. And, and it, that wiener program is when you use your helicopters and your horses and your buggies and all of that when you're educating them. And then when they're educated, they go into this system and, and it's low stress. So they, like I said, we're making kilograms of beef. That's how we get paid. So the, the better calmer cattle are going to put on more weight. And, and that's what we want at the end of the day. So that's what our system is totally based around waiting to get more kilograms of beef and to get quicker. So if we've got better soil, better grasses, calmer cattle and no stress in the mustering, we're going to have more kilograms of beef at the end of the day. What is next for Mount Riddick? You know, you've got certain things that you've already put in place like the telemetry walkover way units, a lot of infrastructure to sort of carve up your paddocks to be able to do this more intensive grazing. Where do you go from here? We've actually just bought a couple of little farms down in Armada and that's part of our succession for our daughters, whether it's for us to move to or for them. I guess we're still in, they're still quite young, so they're still trying to find their way, but it gives us an opportunity to do something. Steve's father and mother had um, a cattle stud here, a Hereford stud, and we've let that go over the years. I guess we were more focused on the commercial side of it, but we have decided um, we went to the World Hereford Conference in New Zealand last year and that really got our passion ignited again to get back into the stud game. So we're actually looking at doing um, quite a bit to get back into the stud game. I've had conversations with some scientists regarding some carbon farming and that'll probably be a focus in the next two years and we're looking at I, I love Steve I think last night he said he you know we're doing all of this so that we can slow down I don't think we've ever worked so hard in all our lives <laughs> like we're putting in new laneways and new tanks and new troughs to get this um, grazing strategy more widespread um to put yeah a lot smaller paddocks in into our bigger paddocks and to make use of more of the country and um yeah i think i'm really hoping that we can maybe hook up the gooseneck a lot more and put a few more ponies on the truck and go and do a bit more camp drafting it's clear that you and steve look after yourselves because you've made decision after decision after decision to do so we can that's evident from your choices but I'd like to know on a more day-to-day level, what do you do to look after yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, anyway? Well, that's a good question. We sleep well. We um, make sure we're, I guess, housed well. We eat well. Eating's a big thing in Mount Riddick. 9.30 smoko, 12.30 lunch, 3.30 smoko, 6.30 dinner. <laughs> we don't miss out on any of our meals. The, the uh, Mount Riddick yeah. feedlot. Well, yes. <laughs> and it's got really good weight gains in the human department. Um, we surround ourselves with really lovely people. 
And I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, yeah, we, we invest a lot in, in our surroundings here so that where we live is lovely and we can enjoy where we live. And, and I think for us, looking after ourselves is we've got our horses and our little dogs that run around and, and we know our kids are safe and that puts us at ease. And I think no pressure on us. We, we've eliminated the pressure. You know, people take on a lot of volunteer roles and they take on a lot of things outside of their jobs. Um, we've just limited that. So having that time to be able to sit and just enjoy what we've got. And, um, I'd love more time to be able to sit on the veranda with a cup of tea and just look at the view. And it is an incredible view. We'll also <laughs> post a picture of that, guys. It is unbelievable. It looks like it's just been painted on. Somebody's dropped a backdrop down. And uh, for our final question, looking back on your story so far and all your experiences, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? I'd say my major takeaway lesson would be I'm really glad we chose quality over quantity because our quality of life has been exceptional since then. 